everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Hi, everyone. I'm Rivi Frankel, and welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series on Tvarim is titled Dorhem Sheikh, Messages for a Lifetime. Each episode explores Moshe's educational message for the Jewish people as they prepare to enter the land of Israel. Each week's guest will be someone who herself has learned a Matan and is now passing on these educational messages to the next generation of Torah student. Today's episode is dedicated by Aviva Aspler Drazen in memory of her father, Yosef Yoshua ben Avraham Shalom Verifka, on his first yard site. If you would like to sponsor a Matan podcast in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office by telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content, so if you have deliberated until now, please don't hesitate to be in touch. This week's Parsha, Parshat Kitetze, has 74 of the Torah's mitzvot. Some of the more famous or perhaps infamous ones include Eshet Yafat Toar, The Laws of the Beautiful Captive of War, Ben Sora Umore, often called the Wayward Son, Shiluah HaKain, the sending away of the mother bird, and law pertaining to a bride's virgin status and adultery. There are also laws commanding the people to build a fence around their roofs, not to plow with an ox and a donkey together, and not to turn a slave away, one who is seeking refuge from his master. The list of mitzvot continues, vacillating between laws related to communal living and personal relationships. There are three events we are told to remember in this week's Parsha. What happened to Miriam in the desert, namely that she was afflicted with Tzarat, that we were slaves in Egypt as a rejoinder to treat the weak with compassion, and the end of the Parsha to remember how Amalek attacked without fear of God. My guest today is Yael Leibowitz. She is a lecturer at Matan and part of the first cohort of Matan's Kitvuni Fellowship, which was created to promote the publication of high-level Torah scholarship by women. The initiative provides female Torah scholars with the support necessary to facilitate their ability to complete a book of Torah scholarship. Yael is writing a book for the Koran Tanakh series on Ezra and Nehemiah. Yael, it's wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Rafi. It's really great to be back. This week's Parsha has a lot of, as I said, infamous <laughs> mitzvot and commentaries. And it's really interesting to me how it really does go between laws that pertain to personal relationships and laws that pertain to the community and how there's almost a blurred line between some of those laws as if a young girl's virginity is anybody else's business except her (laughs) own and then maybe her partner's. And without even really a segue, I'd love to just jump in and hear what you can lighten up for us, if you will. Yeah, so your intro is actually perfect, because what we're going to be looking at today really is, like you said, a a halacha that, from the perspective of our modern sensibilities, at the risk of sounding irreverent, sounds almost, I don't want to say insane, but it's a very, very hard halacha to wrap our minds around. And just for our listeners, I'll I'll give you a sense of the halacha that we're talking about. So the halacha that you were just referencing, Rebbe, which is, you know, kind of a, a fascinating and also obviously for, for most listeners disturbing law, starts in chapter 22 in Dvarim, in verse 13. And it's a really, really fascinating hypothetical case. It says, Ki ish isha, uva eleha, usnea, right? 
-hmm. So if a man is married to a woman, and snea doesn't necessarily have to mean, uh, you know, sort of hatred the way that we think of it, but did not love her the way, for example, that the contract would have would have expected. It says the samla ali lot dvarim leha shame ra. So he basically starts to disparage her and speak about and and give her a bad name. Okay, and what's and then it explains what does that mean the bad name? And he explains, we consummated our marriage on our first night, and I found her not to be a virgin. And then it explains the outcome, what happens. The father of this young girl, the Ima, and her mother, which we'll talk about why it's important that both parents are involved. They bring out physical proof of her virginity, which we have to imagine would mean a bloody sheet or a bloody garment. And they argue to the el to the Zkenim, who were the, um, and we're going to talk about this in a couple of minutes, they were sort of the administers of justice in the ancient world. They say, you know, our daughter was in fact a virgin. Here's our physical proof. And he's just spreading lies about her because he, because he hates her. And they go on and they sort of replay the case for the Zikneha who then spread her, it says at the end of the Pasuk, her simla, her garments out. And if in fact it's true, then the man has to pay restitutions to undo the libels that he spread about this girl. And as we're going to see by extension, her family. But verse 20, this is probably the Pasuk that most people have trouble with. If in fact she was not a virgin, they cannot find physical proof. So then they bring this young girl or young young woman out to the door, uh, to the entrance of her father's household, and she's stoned by the people in her city. And this is a pasuk that's used in other contexts as well, where essentially the uh, community had to sort of purge the nivala, the abomination or, or abominable uh, person from their midst. I don't think we have to explain to anyone who's listening right now why that pops up might yeah, be a Yeah, I'm really bit curious where you're going to go with this and how you're going <laughs> to kind of... Uh... It's a good way. Whoever's like starting the podcast with their morning coffee, good morning. So I, listen, I'll, I'll say there's, you know, I'll start with a more broad discussion, not specific to this halakha that you know, I talk about a lot of times in classes with my students. When we come across, we have to remember we're people of the book, which is sort of a double-edged sword, because really what we're trying to do is take laws, halachot, that were expressed and articulated thousands and thousands of years ago and understand them in our modern context. And that's not always easy. And I think there are essentially two sort of extreme ways to react to laws that we come across when, or when we come across laws like this. So one is sort of the very, I would say, pious approach, right? To say these laws are divine, they're halakha, and it is what it is. And, you know, we sort of have to just accept that this is the way God wanted it or, you know, however we want to express it. I would say that I don't even think chazal go to that extreme, honestly, and we may have time at the end to talk about that. But the other extreme reaction is to say, 
say these were, you know, ancient laws that were given in an ancient Near Eastern context. They're no longer relevant because we've evolved as society, we've evolved as human beings. And so by extension, and again, I'm saying this is a very extreme reaction, but I, I think many Jews certainly have this reaction. You know, as a result, I can't, I can no longer hold the Torah as authoritative because these laws are just so beyond the pale of anything that I could or ever want to experience. And I'm sort of putting those two extremes out there, but I think at the end of the day, and I talk with my students about this all the time, I think really it's our job to look at the pshat, which means to look at the context in which this law was originally given, to understand what this law actually meant to its original audience when they were hearing it, and from there sort of move beyond to, okay, so now what does that mean for me now that I no longer live in that social reality that once existed? So I think the context that we're talking about in this is something that's a really, really fascinating topic in its own right. So I, I really recommend anyone who's listening to look more into this topic. In the ancient world, something that existed that we don't think about a lot is a social code, we might call it which was, I'll just call it for today's discussion, sort of the code of honor and shame um, that existed in the ancient world and really shaped in many ways ancient tribal society, certainly in the Mediterranean area. And honor and shame codes, you know, it's something that even to this day, by the way, we see in subcultures where you have sort of these sub-societies, if you think about gangs or mafias or even uh, codes that are built and exist in prisons to sort of maintain order, where order, or you might say law and order is not coming from a top down, but more from a sort of bottom up approach. And honor and shame, essentially, it's not, you know, when we think of the words honor and shame, I think they're much more uh, benign than they really were in the ancient world. When we're talking about shame, we don't mean like, oh my goodness, I'm so embarrassed, I wore that to that, you know, to that bar mitzvah. Shame in the ancient world really was a preventative measure that was used to create order. So, you know, survival in the ancient world depended on a couple of things, right? So we had you need land, you need to own land in order to work it. You were subsistence farmers for the most part, so you have to grow the food that you're gonna sustain your family with and that land had to be fertile. And you had to try as much as possible to prevent or to protect yourself and your family from enemy attacks. And then there were always, you know, of course, the natural disasters and plagues that were much less under people's control. But in order to sort of maintain those first two, right, in order to have land to work and in order to be able to prevent against attacks from outsiders. So people created alliances and what you had essentially were different units within these tribes and within nations, more broadly speaking. There were these concentric circles that started from the smallest, which would be what we call in, in Tanakh the Beit Av, right? These sort of patriarchal households. And that would extend out to larger and larger circles. And when we see, you know, a lot of the terminology that we see in Tanakh that we're not always sure what to make of, you know, what's a Beit Av and what's a Maten, what's a Shevet. So those are really essentially all of these concentric circles that extend outward. And what essentially would happen is that the any household and any maten, any shevet, was always trying to make alliances with other households and tribes because it's only when you have this extended, these extended alliances that you could actually protect yourself against enemies. It's only when you have these extended alliances, for example, where if someone becomes destitute, then his kinsmen are expected to redeem his field and then sell it back to him when he has the money to buy it back. A lot of the halachot that we look at in Tanakh that we're not, again, we're not really sure what to make of. If you have, you know, the halachot that I just mentioned, for example, of Yibam, uh, leveret marriage and Geulat Karka, where you're buying back, you know, redeeming your, your kinsmen's land. But for example, the, you know, the halachot that we think of that we, or, or maybe 
maybe we don't think of, right? We talk about an irmiklat. If someone is murdered accidentally, right? Someone's axe goes flying and kills Bob. So Bob's family is going to want to kill Joe, whose axe went flying at Bob's head. But Joe can go run to the irmiklat. So what's that halacha all about? So in modern times, it would just be between Joe and Bob. But if we think about ancient times, what these alliances were all about was really about protecting your kinsmen. So protecting your kinsmen means I'm going to have to avenge the blood spilling of my kinsmen. I think that we see this also uh, in the narrative of Tanakh, meaning mm-hmm. in, in Shoftim, where we don't yet have a king and we're all these different tribes and which tribes are answering the help calls of which tribes. And then when you have the whole horrible story of Pilagesh Begiv'ah, yes. it's this yes. up in arms of which tribe is going to say that they are connecting to me. So even beyond the halachic narratives that you're talking about, I think we see it pretty clearly in the the stories as we enter Eretz Yisrael and we're not yet a people. Correct, 100%. What you're talking about, you know, the, the episodes in Shoftim, which is sort of what we might say the worst case scenario, right? Take the the hypothetical of an irmi klat, but gone to the extreme, right? So what you end up with is instead of murder of two individuals, because the clans always have to come and protect or avenge the blood of their kinsmen in order to show that they take care of their kinsmen, so it devolves into essentially either tribal warfare or worse, civil war, right? Those are exactly, think about the story of Shrem and Dina, right? And essentially, you you know, there were, there were a couple of, of elements here that that are important. Essentially, you need to show, the father needed to show, the patriarch of the household, had to show that he was strong, that there was order maintained within his household. Because only if he's a strong personality or a strong figure and shows that he has control over his household, do people want to enter into alliances with him. Okay, so those that strength or that order, you might call it within or the honor, right? Let's just go back to the word that I was talking about, the honor of the household, which is what would enable that household to enter into alliances with with others, which is why other networks would want to create alliances with him was contingent. Honor was really contingent on a couple of things. So you had military strength. Right? You would have, if someone keeps his word, right? If someone doesn't, you didn't sign contracts to the same degree. We weren't as literate. In the ancient world, it was literally the shaking of a hand and the whether that person's word was trustworthy. But particularly for, you know, as it pertains to our discussion, so the strength of the father or the honor of the household manifested in the next generation in the children in two ways. For sons, for male children, it manifested in the son's fidelity to the father and to the household, which meant if the father says go out to war, the son goes out to war. If the father said, you know, work and do this job in the field, that's what he did. And for daughters, it manifested in chastity. And again, you know, we talk a lot about virginity in the ancient world and as modern readers, it's, it is often feels offensive because it feels that we're objectifying these women. And, and I'm not arguing whether or not we were objectifying them, but I think we have to understand that it was less about the ethics or the moral choices of the female that under discussion. And we have to really remember that children in the ancient world, both male and female, were economic assets. If you could marry your sons into a wealthy household and bring a daughter into that household, it was a patrilocal system. So the daughter would move in, right? Think about Rivka and Rachel and Leah, they marry into the husband's household. So you now have extended alliances in other countries. If we think about just Shlomo HaMelech, for example, and all his wives, those were very, very calculated and strategic political alliances beyond everything else. sort of bring it back to the bride, 
There's another halakha in this parsha that we don't think about a lot, and that's the halakha of Ben Sorer Moreh, right? the wayward son. And the wayward son, I would argue, or it's not just me that argues this, I'm basing this on really just reading up on the topic of honor and shame. The Ben Sorer Umora is really the male counterpart to the halakha that we were talking about at the beginning of the parak. Because in both cases, what you have are children that are displaying behaviors or manifesting behaviors that reflect poorly on the household, that bring shame to the father and by extension the household. And it's not about the emotion of shame so much as the practical fallout of that shame. If the father cannot control his son, people are not going to create alliances with him. His network will shrink down to a point where he can't sustain his family anymore. And the same goes for the daughters. Now, what's really, really fascinating, and I'm just going to read you in both the case of Ben Sorer Umora and ours, and I'll just read you the psukim because it's too interesting not to see inside. If you look at the story of Ben Sorer Umora, the halacha, the law there again is about a son who is displaying this sort of rebellious behavior that the Torah and certainly Chazal take it to this, that is going to spiral out of control to a point where he's just going to be destructive and, and create chaos around him, etc., etc. But if you look, it describes all these behaviors, and then it says, verse 19, v'tafsubo aviv the it's not on the zekenim to decide. Then if you look in our halacha as well, and I read the pasuk before, but I'll read it again just for emphasis. In our halacha in verse 16, it says, V'amar avi hana'ara el hazkenim et biti natatil He comes either with the proof or if you jump down to the bottom, it says, lo the parents just couldn't find proof. Okay? Now, again, if you think about the narrative with Yosef and his brothers, the brothers came home, they dipped his coat into the blood of a goat, and it was convincing enough that Yaakov began mourning and crying. Let's just argue a hypothetical case where the parents may even have known that she wasn't a virgin, or for whatever reason, she didn't bleed, but they trusted her loyalty, right? They trusted her honesty, her fidelity. It's not hard to fake bloody sheets, right, or a bloody simla. In both of these cases, what's fascinating is that the parents, not the elders and not the members of the tribe, are the arbiters of justice, right? These kenim appear, and the people in the, of the village or of the city appear as the administers of justice, but the arbiters of justice in both cases are the parents, because essentially this is ultimately about, you know, the whole honor code shame was really about preventative measure. Nowadays in the societies in which we live, it's all about punitive measures, right? If someone steals, then you send them to jail. If someone does something wrong, then you punish them. In the ancient world, it was much less, I mean, there were punitive measures taken, but it was much less about punishment and more about preventative measures taken. Honor and shame, the sort of the threat of shame that would hover over a family and all the implications that that would have was one of the most powerful preventative measures in the ancient world. So essentially what we have in this parsha are two examples of a family who needs, not just for, you know, again, it's not an emotional thing, who needs to maintain their honor in order to ensure that their family can be protected and can be sustained in the long run. And then you have 
the son manifesting the behavior that is antithetical to that code and the daughter as well. In both cases, the parents, the onus is on the parents to decide whether or not that child is going to be purged. Now, again, it sounds so harsh, but ultimately what the parents have to weigh is the honor of the family versus the life of that individual. And if the individual is going to cause so much damage and, and down the line death, right? Again, when I say, when I use the word sustain, I'm not being dramatic. They need to sustain their family. If not, then the other children and the other grandchildren and the entire extended household could be susceptible to war or to famine because people won't buy their produce, whatever it is. Ultimately, what we have here are parents deciding whether or not they're, they're doing essentially a cost-benefit analysis, you know, at the risk of sounding really, really callous. Is this one individual child's life worth the danger that it will cause to the entire clan? And, and I think that when we see it again in that context, now I want to be clear, you know, Chazal talk a lot about how many of the halachot that we see that are presented in these hypotheticals actually never happens. And they use Mansoura Remora as one of those, as an example. Right? I think Chazal on some level intuited that it wasn't so much about the halacha itself so much as to what the halacha was really speaking about and the order in society and the understanding. I don't remember who it was. I think it's Rabbeinu Bachaye who makes the parallel between Akedat Yitzchak and the laws of Ben Sorer Umora. And what I think that really that comment is speaking to is the idea that as much as we love our children, again, you know, at the risk of sounding really, really callous, that there are values, there are collective values that are sometimes more important than our individual personal love for our child. That's something that's also lost on us. We live in a world where individuals matter, where there's this question of who do I love and who do I want to marry and what do I do in my life that's fulfilling. Those were not questions that ancient people ever thought to ask because people were thought of as part of a collective and you were valued in society as much as you were able to contribute to that collective. So if not only were you not contributing, but you were damaging that collective, then the Torah talks about what steps are taken in order to, to restore order. I think there's another really interesting parallel to this, and I'm curious what your take on it is, when later there's a commandment that if a slave is running away from its master, Mm -hmm. and it's seeking refuge with you, you mm -hmm. don't turn the slave over to the master, which right. went against like all the different ancient codes, right? The way that yeah. the ancient world worked was if a slave ran away right. and you back. didn't turn them over, then you got killed, right? Correct, correct. And talking about honor and shame, that was also a really big part of it. So on the one hand, you have this system where parents are being given a lot of autonomy for their own family system, and yet later in the same Parsha, the Torah is giving us very clear boundaries of when that honor and shame can't come into play. And mm. I'm curious what your take on that is. That's interesting. Or is the Tanakh re-envisioning what an honorable person is and an honor, right? Meaning Tanakh in many ways is really re-envisioning. You know, again, I have to give this more thought. I don't know if, I, if my answer will suffice, but my initial reaction is what if Tanakh is really redefining or the Torah is redefining honor in the sense of an honorable person or an honorable, you know, household treats every human being with kindness and with empathy as opposed to what the ancient world in which these laws were given sort of understood or interacted with people that were considered slaves. You know, if you go back to, you know, I'll say this, I think slavery is one of the most fascinating examples of we talk about the Torah as on the one hand, um, reflecting its ancient context and at the same time imbuing and, and not necessarily trying to upend all of the social realities of its day. Right. It's not saying slavery can't exist, but it's saying 
understand that even though this institution exists, at the end of the day, go back to the very beginnings of Breshit, every single human being has a common ancestor and every human being is inherently equal. Right? So the Tanakh does things simultaneously. Tanakh will also pre present, you know, and this is halakha as a perfect case, patriarchy as a social reality that existed. And yet, if you read through Tanakh, it is very, very clear that there is no inherent difference, and I'm not saying inherent difference in terms of functioning, and but in terms of worth, you know, Tanakh presents women oftentimes as subordinate, because that was the social reality, but not as inherently inferior to men. So that's another fascinating thing that I think Tanakh does, is it takes these social constructs that existed, but infuses, you know, you mentioned slavery, where there are so many laws that talk about how we have to treat slaves. And it goes back, you know, it harkens back to the because you were slaves in Egypt. So I would say, you know, to answer your question, even though that was a very long winded, twisty answer, but I think on some level, giving back a slave in the mindset of the Torah, right, being humane is from the Torah's perspective, maybe not from the ancient Near Eastern perspective, the honorable act. I think it redefines that. And there's so many, you know, I know we're, we don't really have time, but there are so many halachot like this that if we read them in their ancient context, I think about Isha Sota, right? It's not in this parsha, it's, it's back in Bamidbar. But that was also a manifestation or a halacha that is understood within this honor and shame context. And if we look at it, again, it looks through our modern eyes like, how can you drag a woman to the temple and embarrass her like that and loosen her hair when all she is is suspected? And, you know, this is not, this is Tikva Freimer Kensky has a fascinating reading where she compares Isha Sota to other trial by ordeals that existed in the ancient world in relatively modern times, not modern, but closer to our period. Think about the witch trials, right? These trial by ordeals is essentially you suspect a woman of doing something and then you create a trial by ordeal where, you know, either she drowns because you tie weights to her leg or if she surfaces to the top, that means she's a witch and then she has to be burned, right? So those trial by ordeals in the ancient world, if you think about it, the equivalent of Isha Sota in a non total world, she would have been dragged and the friend, the jealous husband's friends could have said, yeah, we saw her with another man and she would be killed. There was no one to defend her. The law of Isha Sota is essentially Hashem decides, right? Hashem, she has to drink the, the Mayim and it says, makes it very, very clear. God decides if she's guilty or not. It's not for the husband. It's not for his friends. And essentially that halacha within, again, within its context is preventing a kangaroo court where an innocent woman can be killed. So, you know, again, I'm using that example. I, I apologize. It's not from this week's Parsha, but so many of these halachot, we going back to those two extremes that we could take. Do we just disregard the Torah's authority or do we just argue, you know, or just say that it's divine and there's no, I think it's neither of those. I think that understanding what the pshat of these or understand, you know, again, pshat as I understand it, understanding the ancient context in which these halachot were given enables us, you know, to really understand what the meaning is behind these halachot and then appreciate how within rabbinic literature and within chazal, they evolve and speak to really what the value underlying the construct of the halacha really is all about. I think that in essence, what you're saying is that context is key. And yeah. I want to thank you so much for being able to give us that ability of not saying, well, it's divine, so it is what it is. <laughs> like, we can still be who we are as modern people and modern thinkers. 
and not need to be either extreme. I think, you know, you're, the series really here you keep mentioning to me is about Moshe Rabbeinu and how Moshe Rabbeinu's words are eternal. And I think Moshe Rabbeinu's words remain eternal for us if we assume this twofold approach, right? If we understand that the Torah and the words of the Torah are divine, and so by definition they're fixed, right? We can't just uproot halachot because they no longer jive with our modern sensibilities. But at the same time, and this is what we see, this is really ultimately what the entire enterprise of Torah Shvapeh is about, is on the one hand, the fixed nature of these divine laws, and on the other hand, sort of the mutability of them in the sense that they're meant to evolve alongside us. I don't think it's coincidental that Chazal used Ben-Sora or as one of the examples of a hypothetical that never never was and never will be, is what Chazal say. And I think that that's really our job uh, when we're learning halacha, and, and I think it's what enables us to connect to the timelessness and the eternal nature of, of everything that we're about and everything we hold dear. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.